This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter One My Wife is an Invalid. Candles were still being used to light one to bed. Kerosene lamps still exploded. Stagecoaches made six miles an hour, and one traveled by rail at the risk of one's neck. Gentlemen wore great coats instead of overcoats, and male quartets sang the drummer boy of Shiloh. Hoops were going out, bustles were not yet in, but ladies achieved quite as telling effect with tight lacing and layers of petticoats. The war referred to in conversation was not World War II. Conversation, however, held a not unfamiliar ring. Returned veterans complained that civilians had all the jobs. The older generation complained that the younger generation was going to the devil. The younger generation retorted that they had inherited a world which their elders had treated like H. Dumpty's egg and now expected them to put together again. Barring a few of Mr. Edison's inventions and the fact that the Republican Party was in power, times were not so very different then from now. There was the usual post-war wave of spiritualism, the usual post-war depression. Eggs were selling at 10 cents a dozen, butter at eight and a third cents a pound, quack medicine, paper money, and grant campaign buttons flooded the country. And Edwin Booth was making his first Midland tour since the tragedy of Ford's Theater in Washington. It was the decade following the Civil War. On a certain evening in November, Miss Judith Amory stood before her mirror in an Indiana boarding house and dressed to go to the theater. Her chin was tilted at a belligerent angle, and for good reason. She was going alone, without a male escort, without even a female companion. She was going to an evening performance of Macbeth. It would have been a daring thing to do even in her home city of Chicago. In provincial Terre Haute, it was an unheard of. Sheltered young ladies who had no one to take them to the theater remained at home and embroidered chaste mottos on sofa pillows or played sentimental ballads on the piano. But Miss Judith Amory was not a sheltered young lady. She was an extremely competent young woman who had been taking care of herself for more than she cared to admit and was perfectly capable of going anywhere alone. Besides, she had never seen Cushman and Booth together. Any one of the widows or spinsters in Mrs. Pruitt's genteel boarding establishment for ladies would have been pleased to accompany Miss Amroy as her guest. 
but none of them would have considered the excursion worth the price of a theater ticket. By the same token, neither did Judith consider their company worth the price. Autumn was well advanced, and she had not yet secured a position for the winter. It was really the height of extravagance for an unemployed teacher of English literature to squander two dollars on a balcony seat. But that only lent zest to the indulgence. She dressed with care, prolonging the pleasures of anticipation. First, the cotton chemise, then the corsets laced to exactly 19 inches. Then the short muslin petticoat, then the long, plain petticoat, then the full ruffled petticoat, then the ruffled petticoat with tucks and embroidery, then the petticoat with laced edge ruffles, and finally, the sheer cambric petticoat, flounced to the waist with ruffles on each flounce. Last of all, the full gathered skirt of blue poplin with the tight buttoned bodice, and the black velvet ribbon at the waist. There was also a black velvet ribbon around her bare, white throat. Velvet neck ribbons were the fashion, and Judith was fortunate. On her long, slender neck, they were becoming. She looked very well when dressed. She had a slim, graceful figure and a thin, eager face, to which excitement lent a glow, which gave an illusion of beauty. Yet, she was not beautiful. Her eyes were too close together, her nose too long, her mouth too wide. But sparkling animation, a provocative manner, and a low-pleasing voice made her attractive particularly to the opposite sex. Given wealth and family background, she might have made a very good marriage. But without a tie in the world, without a dollar she had not earned, she had small chance of even meeting an eligible man, much less marrying one. She faced this fact and accepted it. Since she could not bring herself to marry any of the men whom it was possible to meet, and who could not manage to meet any of the men she would choose to marry, this charming young woman was, at the age of 25, still Miss Judith Amory. Miss Prewitt's ladies were in the back parlor when Judith came downstairs. The opening strains of I dreamt that I dwelt in marble halls warned that someone was at the piano and bout to burst into song. At sight of Judith in jacket and toque and carrying her small velvet muff, the music stopped and the ladies turned with flattering interest to the stairs. Miss Judith, you are going out? I'm going to the theater. The theater? This from the widow of a Methodist bishop. I'm going to see Macbeth. Oh, a sigh of doubtful relief, granted partial absolution. After all, Shakespeare was sometimes mistaken for the Bible. Mrs. Pruett, a motherly Mrs. Grundy, smiled on Judith and brought another lamp. I'll put a light for you in the front parlor, my dear. You won't want me bringing your gentleman friend back here. Judith braced herself, 
I'm not expecting a gentleman, Mrs. Pruitt. I'm going alone. And then, with the sound of a concerted gasp behind her, and the vision of Mrs. Pruitt's plump face settling like a shocked cheese, she went swiftly out the street door before the word alone could explode behind her. Well, said the bishop's widow, that's what comes of being born and brought up in Chicago. According to Terre Haute standards, Chicago was what had risen from the ashes when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Judith, meantime, had caught the horse trolley on the next street and was rolling away to town without being, in any way, molested. It's ridiculous, she fumed inwardly, for women to be unable to go where they please by themselves. Someday they will. Someday women will do everything men do, and nothing will be thought of it. But it will probably take another war to do it. Women are greater slaves than the Negroes ever were. But she could not let her irritation annoy her now. She possessed one of those fortunate dispositions, fortunate to the owner at least, which enables one to concentrate on his immediate purpose to the exclusion of all else. Her immediate purpose was to enjoy her evening's excursion. No annoyance was sufficient to distract her interest. The horse car dropped her two blocks from the theater. She hurried briskly through the November darkness. City streets at night did not alarm her. Descending from Chicago cabs and trolleys with her father was among her earliest recollections. She thrilled to lighted street lamps and busy pavements. But advance notices had warned that the performance started punctually at 8 o'clock. She did not want to miss the thrill of the first curtain. The theater lobby milled with the cream of Midwest society. Calmly, determinedly, Judith pushed her way through buffant petticoats and satin-lined opera capes, her head high, her assurance so impeccable that people making way for her failed to notice that no escort hovered at her elbow. But when she had gained the sanctuary of the dimly lit theater, it took all her savoir-faire to present her ticket to the brisk young usher and murmur in reply to his astonished eyebrows. There is no one with me. She had chosen her balcony seat for two reasons. It was cheaper. Also, it rendered her solitary state less conspicuous. But as she felt the eyes following her lone progress down the shallow steps to first row center, second seat from the aisle, she wished for a moment that she had not been at such pains to get the best possible reservation. She would have been less noticeable farther back. But seated and sufficiently rallied to look down on the proscenium directly opposite and only a little below her, she congratulated herself that she had one of the choice seats in the house. And she didn't give a continental how many people were looking at her. 
The aisle seat on her right was vacant. On her left, a family party composed of father, mother, and two half-grown daughters gave her a half-guilty feeling of protection. For all her brave insouciance, she was keenly conscious of being alone. When the mother and the family changed places with her husband, thus taking the seat next to Judith, that independent young woman was shamelessly relieved. She even smiled at the woman, making some small remark, in the hope that people behind her might take her for a late-arriving member of the party. She began to speculate on the chance of the aisle seat remaining unoccupied. The house filled quickly. A trapdoor in the orchestra pit yawned and disgorged musicians and instruments. In a short while, the house lights would dim. Meantime, there was the fascinating distraction of the program. Presenting Mr. Edwin Booth and Miss Charlotte Cushman in Macbeth. A A play by by William Shakespeare. She had no need to read the cast. The supporting players were unfamiliar, unimportant. Many of them recruited locally. Booth was notorious for his carelessness in minor casting. But who cared? What difference did it make who read the lines of ghosts and porters when Cushman and Booth read the immortal dialogues? Act One, Scene One An Open Place It was not a theater with a drop curtain and an orchestra tuning its instruments. It was a cauldron where witches brewed enchantment. The moment of expectancy, this moment of burning cheeks and icy hands, while music played and chattering voices gradually hushed, and lamps dimmed slowly to dusk before the glowing footlights of a stage. This moment, before the rising of the curtain, was worth all the adventure had cost her. A large and substantial presence sank into the seat on the aisle and made quite a commotion shedding a bulky coat. She neither saw nor felt the intrusion. She was conscious of nothing but Act One, Scene One, An Open Place. eaten her nine pharaoh. Grease. That's sweating from the murderer's gibbet. Thrown to the flame. Finger. A birth strangled babe. Ditch delivered by a drap. Make the cruel. Thick and suave. Like a hell broth. Boil and bubble. For a charm of powerful trouble. When shall we three meet again in thunder? Lightning, or in rain, when the 
Charlie Burliston win the battles lost and won. That will be the set of sun. Not till the lights came up at the end of the act did she move. Through the scene changes, she sat tense, leaning forward, oblivious of her surroundings. When the final words came in the great Trajendian's matchless voice, False face must hide hide what the false heart doth know. And the curtain slowly descended, she roused like a sleeper from a drugged slumber and sat limply back in her seat. It was then that she became aware of her new neighbor. He too was relaxing as though from the grip of tension, remembering just in time that she was a lady. She did not look at him, but assiduously studied her program. The family on her left were having open discussion on the merits of the production. The youngest daughter in pigtails and hair bows was disappointed in the witches. They had not been gruesome enough. The man on Judith's right was having trouble with his greatcoat. There was no place to put it that was not in someone's way. He murmured apologies, which Judith quite properly ignored. He was a tall man, and his long legs took up more than his share of room without a heavy cloak piled on his knees. She wondered why he didn't check it. And then the lights began dimming again, and she forgot the man in his troublesome coat. At the next intermission, a number of people went down to the lobby to stretch their legs. The family on her left departed. Judith was left in her seat beside the stranger. Why didn't he go out too? It was the gentlemen mostly who were leaving. But instead, he arranged his coat over the back of his seat and settled himself to study his program. Judith, likewise, kept her eyes glued to the folder, which she now knew by heart. But every nerve was tingling. The woman beside her had left the balcony. The woman beside her were waiting for their escorts. But, worst of all, the man beside her knew that she was unattended. If she had had presence of mind, she would have followed the family party out and no one would have been the wiser. And then her modern scorn for conventions reasserted itself. Rules of conduct were for timid people, not for Miss Judith Amory. Defiantly, she turned her head and found herself looking straight into the eyes of the man beside her. Whether he had been watching her or whether their eyes met by accident, they both looked swiftly away. But she was no longer uneasy, nor even embarrassed. The man whose eyes she had just encountered would never annoy a woman. She began to steal surreptitious glances at him from under lowered lids. At first, lifting her eyes no higher than his hands. Long, well-shaped hands, but with nails hard close and skin redly clean as from much scrubbing. The sleeves of his coat were worn at the wrists as though the fabric were not new. Yet it was broadcloth sleeve and the wristband beneath it was linen. Judith's eyes moved upwards and caught the gleam of a heavy gold chain across a broad expanse of smoky gray vest and the flowing ends of a carelessly knotted silk tie. 
His dress was that of a gentleman, yet his hands did not look like her father's. She wondered who and what he might be. Then her eyes moved higher and she forgot about his hands. His head, she decided, should have belonged on George Rogers Clark. It was beautifully molded, covered with thick, curling brown hair, and he carried it like a man accustomed to looking over the heads of lesser men. His face was bronzed as though from long exposure to the sun and wind, and the blue of his eyes was in such startling contrast that they seemed to smolder with blue flames. This was no man about town. This was no townsman at all. Hands, face, physique set him apart from the pallid city folk who filled the theatre. He turned his head and found her watching him. If he had been an urbanite, she would have frozen and looked right through him. But because she was sure he was a countryman, she was no more disconcerted than if she had been caught admiring a fine horse in a pasture. She smiled a little, and he responded with the eagerness of a lonely stranger. Magnificent, isn't it? He was referring, naturally, to the performance of Macbeth. She nodded. My little friends didn't care for the witches. It was exactly a falsehood, but it implied a connection with the family party. Now that's strange. Children, as a rule, are quite taken with the witches. I'm afraid she takes her supernatural too literally. With Shakespeare, it's always subjective, Judith thought. There I go, talking as though I were in a classroom. He was taking vigorous issue with her. Do you really think the Weird Sisters were a figment of Macbeth's imagination? She quoted, Spirits that tend on mortal thoughts. What are the witches except the incarnate evil that is already in Macbeth? If he had not already thought of removing Duncan from the throne, he would never have met three witches who would foretell his doing it. Then you think his crime was motivated purely from within? Assuredly. That makes him a monster. How do you see him? As a tragic study of fiend-inspired criminality, I think he was inherently a heroic character, impelled toward crime by a demoniacal power. You wouldn't be alluding to his wife? But Judith could not distract him with humor. He was very earnest in his conception of the play. Any other interpretation he maintained made Macbeth a mere ruffian, a sort of medieval Bill Sykes. Judith thought, He knows his Shakespeare and wondered more than ever who he was. Mr. Booth seems to have the same idea of the part. Have you ever seen his Hamlet? She said. No. He spoke regretfully. I saw his Othello once in Indianapolis, and his Lear. I preferred McCullough's Lear, but Booth's Hamlet is something I've yet to enjoy. You're quite a lover of Shakespeare, aren't you? Isn't everyone who comes to a Shakespeare play? He asked naively. Goodness, no. Those people down there? she indicated the fashionable crowd in the orchestra rows and boxes, came to show off their clothes. And the people up here came for any number of reasons, principally to see the brother of the male who killed Lincoln. It's the people in the gallery who really came to see Shakespeare. The aphorism was not original. She was quoting her father, who in turn had quoted Mr. William Winter. Then I should be sitting in the gallery. So should you. I beg your pardon? The conversation was beginning to get slightly out of hand. 
When a young lady comes alone to see Macbeth, it must be from love of Shakespeare. Both tone and manner were respectful, but the blue eyes held a twinkle that made Judith blush furiously and fix her own with marked attention on the curtain. She had learned her lesson, but this was what came of talking to strange men. But when the third act curtain had descended, they turned to each other spontaneously, like companions of long-standing impatient, to resume an argument. Did you notice? demanded Judith triumphantly. The ghost of Banquo did not appear. Only the empty chair. Yet the way Booth gazed upon that empty chair made the ghost more real than if it had been visible. Henry Irving uses a visible ghost all daubed with phosphorus. It's very bad, because the whole idea is subjective, like the witches. But he refused to go with her that far. The ghost is subjective. The ghost is Macbeth's conscience, but the witches are preternatural, occult power which impels him against his better nature. Macbeth is the embodied conflict between good and evil. That's what makes it poetic tragedy. Otherwise, it's just a murder story. Where did you study Shakespeare? At Asbury College. When the curtain fell for the fourth time, he remarked exactly as though she would know to whom he was referring. I must try and remember every detail, so I can tell the children. He had a sensation of being suddenly dropped from an elevation. Children? He nodded, smiling, and glanced at the two little girls in pigtails. Next time I shall bring all three of them with me. Suddenly, illogically, Judith's evening went flat. How silly she had been to fall into conversation with a stranger. Doesn't your wife care for Shakespeare? He had not mentioned bringing his wife to see a play, only his children. Maybe he was a widower. There was a noticeable silence. She glanced at him and was startled at the change which had come over his face. It was as though a mask had dropped over his features, conforming to their outline but extinguishing their light. He said, My wife is an invalid. Suddenly, Judith felt impelled to explain herself to the stranger, to make it clear to him that she was a teacher of literature who attended Shakespearean performances solely for educational purposes, and that she had no interest in life outside her work. She drew a self-portrait of intelligent female independence that would have disarmed any man. It disarmed the man who had spoken with such warmth of his children, and over whose countenance a mask had dropped when he mentioned his wife. I should never have taken you for a schoolteacher. He looked at Judith with interest. Where have you taught? She mentioned the day school for young ladies in Chicago, where she had taught before coming to Indiana. I thought it must be something like that. You're not big enough to handle boys. I'm looking right now for a man who can whip the Pettigrew kids. You're looking for... Judith's surprise was genuine. I'm a township trustee. The teacher in our district met with a serious accident. He'll be out for the rest of the winter. Judith drew a long breath. Where is your school? She inquired casually. About 25 miles from here. On a railroad? On the Logansport line, not far from Woodridge. I see. To whom would one apply for the school? You know of a man? I might. Tell him to see Richard Tomlinson, Timberley Farm. 
Anyone in Woodridge can direct him to Timberley. He whispered the last words hurriedly, for the lights were dimming. But Judith's mind made careful memorandum. She slept late the morning after Macbeth. There was no need for early rising. She had no classes to meet. We don't feel, Miss Amory, that you were quite the person needed here at Oakland. Or perhaps we should say a female seminary is not the place for some of your ideas. If you are referring to my statement in class that English divorce laws were responsible for George Eliot's... Please, Miss Amory. You have been told repeatedly neither the books nor the life of George Eliot are fit matters for discussion with young female pupils. You have willfully ignored the express ruling of your superiors. Your services will not be required further. Which explains why Judith was able to sleep late the morning after Macbeth. There was nothing to be gained by going down to breakfast and facing a room full of disapproving widows and curious spinsters who had learned by this time that she had not come in till nearly midnight. For that matter, there was nothing to be gained by facing Mrs. Prewett and being reminded that she was in arrears with her board. It was pleasanter to lie in bed and relive last night's enjoyment. If it were done when tis done, then to were well. It were done quickly if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. What an unforgettable voice Booth had. What agony of soul could be born on a single cadence? How manifest had been the haunted condition of Macbeth's mind? He had indeed seemed driven by some external power of evil. But I still don't believe he actually met the witches. Of the Lady Macbeth of Charlotte Cushman, she was inclined to be critical. True, the great actress had been superb in her embodiment of a character almost savage. But she had been too masculine, too lacking in the feminine charm, by which women captivates and dominates her man. There had been too much magnificent elocution, too little soft subtlety. She never could have handled Macbeth that way. He never would have stood for browbeating. She should have been wily, clever, ruthless, yes, but it should all have been more mental. If I had her voice, I could have done a better job. She lay for a while toying with the picture of herself coming down a stairway in a white robe, a flickering taper in her hand. She watched herself set the candle down and rub her hands one over the other, as though washing them. Out, damned spot, out, I say. Under the bedclothes, her hands were dripping wet. She turned on her side, laughing all by herself at her own histrionics. I should have been an actress. That's the best possible life for a woman with no money and no chance of a good marriage. At least it's better than teaching horrid little girls who yes you to your face and make mouth behind your back. Smirky little hypocrites. I hate girls. All girls. Big, little, old, and young. She buried her face in the trough between the hard boarding house pillows and shed a few tears for poor Judith Amory 
who had been so shabbily treated by the lady principal of the Oakland Female Seminary. Then suddenly she flopped on her back, eyes dry as shale on which rain leaves no trace. Her thoughts had leaped to the point towards which they had been veering from the moment of waking, the man who sat beside her the night before. His name was Richard Tomlinson, and he lived near Woodridge. He was a farmer, but well-to-do. Note the gold watch chain, the linen wristbands, the broadcloth coat. He had been to college. He spoke with the cultured accent of the educated man. He was township trustee for a school that was without a teacher. He had three children and an invalid wife. Here, Judith's racing thought stopped as at a sudden hurdle. What a damnable irony was that invalid wife. For the first time in her life, she had met a man whom, had there been no obstacle, she would have chosen to marry, and she confidently believed might have accomplished her purpose. She recalled their shared enjoyment of the night before. It had been like a mutual discovery. Had his wife disapproved of his going to the theater, or had he deceived her about the purpose of his trip to the city? He did not look like a man who would bother to deceive. Besides, he had said he must remember the play so that he could tell the children about it. She remembered the set of his mouth when he said that, as though he might have defied someone's displeasure in coming, and would further defy it by talking about a forbidden subject on his return. He was probably stubborn as a mule in a good-natured sort of way. Of course, she was imagining his whole background. All that she knew for a fact was that his wife was an invalid. All that she knew which in any way concerned Miss Judith Amory was that he was trustee for a school that was without a teacher. He had stated that male teachers only need apply. But Judith guessed with sly intuition that if an attractive young woman appeared in the neighborhood of Woodridge, inquiring for Mr. Richard Tomlinson, he would be at a loss to explain where and how he had made her acquaintance, except on the grounds of school business. She smiled to herself and stretched luxuriously, like a cat who knows of a promising mousehole. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at valeriemoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Angel Black. 
and though born and raised in California, I have recently relocated to Oklahoma. While marketing is my day job, my heart and passion lie with performing. I'm a musical theater performer, a singer, a dancer, a choreographer, an actress, and a former podcast host. I have had the honor of performing seven characters in this audiobook, those being Bishop's Widow, Martha Shook, Ellie Barclay, Jane Mitchell, Jenny Barclay, Mrs. Pruitt, and Nancy Turner. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. It's the only thing that will prevent a panic. There's no currency in the country. How long has it been since you've seen a silver piece, John Barkley? Or you, Doc, how are you paid these days? In produce, I'll be bound. Barkley said, <laughs> Doc, who, without moving, was looking over the heads of the other two men and said, Who is she? If its crudity dismayed her, she gave no sign. She merely repeated the object of her visit. I was told that I might find Mr. Tomlinson here. She addressed herself to the schoolmaster. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her errors and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.